So uh, welcome uh, to today's BBL. And uh, I've been invited to talk about uh, research questions in international law. And um, this is something that we've discussed uh, throughout uh, the different years when we've had our retreat. So for, for those of us who have uh, attended the research retreats, I think most of this, uh, and, and I'm talking about all the research retreats, uh, some things may be familiar, uh, but uh, since not all of us ha have been at all the retreats, I, I hope this may be interesting. Um, and um, so the, the outline for today is, um, I, I'll talk about the, the topics you can see on the screen. Uh, and... Um, so uh, first, the constructed alignment between problem questions, theory and method, a little bit about overarching and subordinate questions, how to bend research questions, uh, different types of critique, and how to work with a working question. And uh, I hope we will have a lot of time for discussion also. Um, the first uh, picture you can see here, it's... Um, from the article by Ahuja, where she's talking about the fit or justification between question, object, approach, and significance. And I mean, it's uh, quite obvious that the, the, the question you, you pose have to be reflected in the method and the, the analysis and in then the conclusions. Um, so there, there's some basic question. What, what is the question you're asking yourself What's your object of inquiry? How do you interpret the object? And also, when you, when you formulate the question, uh, it's good to add the question, so what? And I, I will get back to what, what is meant with that question and what is the purpose of that question. Uh, this is a, another picture which tries to capture the same thing. This is by our colleague, Yuan Shalin, uh, where it's making the same argument that there has to be an alignment between the problem and with the problem, I include the research question, the purpose, why are you asking? Why do you want, why is it important to, to answer these questions, the material, terminology and concepts, theory and method. So uh, I, I will here in this presentation focus on problem and purpose, the other things, um, we, ha we have to leave a little bit for now. Uh, so if we start uh, uh, to formulate a problem, um, and uh, some would describe this as the subject of a text or the subject of the thesis, I, I think it's better to, to talk about it in terms of a problem. And um, so, so you need to identify and start from a problem in international law. And what, what is a good problem? Uh, and this is something that I've, it's probably nothing unique, but it's something I've learned from, from political science. A good problem is something that at first glance can be con a contradiction or puzzle. And uh, I'll take an example now from, from political science, which I, I think is good. So um, something that uh, political scientists or international relations scholars have been focusing on throughout from the 1950s and on, onwards in the so-called realist approach to international relations is a balance of power. 
and the idea is that uh, states they, they focus on power and uh, they want to balance it either they have power on their own if they're a superpower or if they're a medium or small sized country they have to get the power somehow and they get power either by making alliances with each other or with the great power or if they're confronted by a hostile or challenging superpower, they can also choose to bandwagon and that's kind of subordinate themselves to the superpower. So you can either balance against the superpower or accept <laughs> what they're asking for you. Uh, and that's how they try to explain, I mean, in this realist approach, uh, why, why state form alliances and so on. And in the end of the 1980s, the Cold War ended and this rivalry between East and West disappeared. So if we follow this theory of um, balance of powers, what should small and medium-sized European states do? Because at that time, the only superpower, I'm talking about the early 1990s, was the US. So according to the kind of old traditional theory, uh, what these states should do is to make an alliance against the United States. That's what the, the theory uh, kind of suggested. But it did not happen. So this is an example of a puzzle. I mean, that's how, how international relations scholars would kind of, this, this is an example of, of a puzzle in political science. So we have a theory or an idea. The result would uh, give this, would be the following. But it doesn't happen. So it's some kind of puzzle and uh, we have to solve it. Now, if I may finish this example with the kind of balancing of power, how, what, what is the potential way of solving this puzzle? So th there was a scholar who suggested that uh, states don't balance power, they balance threats. So it's kind of they adjusted the theory. And the US was not perceived as a threat. So that's why. European countries didn't balance against the US. And then you have a new theory. Now, so, so the task of the essay is to try to solve this puzzle of contradiction. And now I gave you an example. And problems can be of uh, two different characters or main, 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 two main categories of, of, of problems. So, so the first one is problems that are relevant scholarly. Uh, and contribute to theoretical development. I mean, for example, what, what, what is the function, status, or role of uh, uh, legal presidents, case law from international courts? That's something that is interesting from a scholarly viewpoint. Uh, but problems can also be of a, a, a second character of a kind of societal value. Um, so let's take the example of, uh, of torture. I mean, torture is a real societal problem and uh, that's why we choose to focus on it. And I think uh, for, for a thesis or a scholarly text, it's advisable that problems should have both of these characteristics. They should both be have a scholarly interest and a societal interest. And I mentioned before um, in Pahuja's text, uh, and there's also others who suggest that when you formulated the problem and the question, you should ask yourself, so what? And this so what question is, 
why is this problem interesting? So if if I if I if I do this research, if I answer it, so what? What what will it contribute with? And that goes towards the kind of societal value of the problem. Is this interesting? I mean, one one can uh, research something that is very kind of theoretically interesting, but is of no relevance for what happens in society. And then you should ask yourself, okay, should I kind of spend time on this and effort? So that's the so what question. Uh, now I'll turn a little bit towards the purpose. So the purpose should relate or explain why you have chosen the actual topic and problem. I mean, here you can explain why it's societally or scholarly interesting. What do you want to achieve? Uh, want to examine the need for more detailed regulation, if you have a hypothesis or, or something. Uh, now I'll turn uh, more to the topic of today, research questions. So the purpose leads you to state a certain research question and or a hypothesis. And your texts should focus to answer these research questions and nothing else. I mean, the research questions delimits the, the scope of, of your inquiry. Uh, now, uh, I'm going to talk about bending questions, uh, and uh, here I will use the two texts of Pahuja and Koskinyemi. And uh, Pahuja, she, she distinguishes between straight-line questions and better questions. Another way to, to phrase it is straight-line questions are more descriptive, while as bet these kind of, this category of better questions kind of makes you go into more kind of critical inquiry. So if we compare here, I mean, a straight line question is what should we do? A better question would be how can we understand a certain phenomena? Uh, a, a kind of common question like you can see in student essays, but also in other inquiries, how do we make a given law effective? And then uh, those inquiries often end up in, we should have some kind of new monitoring mechanism or something like that. And, but we don't really ask ourselves, would that kind of monitoring mechanism or change make a difference? So a, a better question is, what work does the law do in the world? I mean, how does it operate? Uh, another kind of quite common question is, does a particular law or norm meet its aims and objectives? A better question would be, what relations does a particular law or norm create and with what effect? Also a normal straight line question, what does a particular norm mean? I mean, that's kind of a very normal. One could instead ask, what different meanings have been given to a norm and to what effect? And it kind of opens up for a more in-depth inquiry and uh, uh, more challenging, more analytical depth, I, I would say. Uh, now, Koskinemi has uh, formulated it in a, in a similar way, I mean, different words. So uh, he, he gives an example of, in his text, or suggests uh, a spurt, uh, when he describes the traditional way of asking question. Uh, so in a traditional and descriptive text, you, you would ask, what does should rule X mean? And then you have potential answers, it can mean, a, B, or C. And now, how, how, what would be a better question or kind of bending the question? Uh, it would be to ask, what should one presume in order to believe rule X means A? 
So uh, you you kind of ask yourself, okay, so if you if you want the rule to mean the following, what do we need to assume or presume in order for that to happen? And by asking the question in this way, you will hopefully uncover or discover or discuss the ideology and assumptions of an institutional rule. So this is, uh, I think, the main takeaway uh, from Koskinen's text. Uh, now I'm going into an another theme. Uh, it's whether to have one or several questions. And um, uh, one way of, of, um, of answering is that is that you should have one overarching question, and then you can have subordinate questions. And the subordinate questions you, you kind of confront first, and when you've answered them, you, you will be able to answer the overarching question. And I think I got these questions from, from Paul, so Paul should be credited here. So, so let's say that the general question of your thesis is the following. How do bilateral investment treaties and investor rights survive in Crimea after the Russian takeover? And now we're talking about the Russian takeover in 2014. And um, these are kind of suggestions of sub-questions that you could ask. So one, one sub-question would be, does Russia secede to this bilateral investment treaty signed by Ukraine in respect to the territory of Crimea? And if the answer is yes, then you will be able to answer the overarching question. But let's say that you come to the conclusion that Russia does not succeed Ukraine. Uh, you have to ask other questions. What responsibilities does Russia have as a de facto ruler of Crimea in respect to bilateral investment treaties signed by Ukraine? What responsibility does Russia have as a de facto ruler in respect to investors established prior to the takeover? So this is an example of, Paul, are you raising your hand now? So you can say something, please, Paul, you're welcome. Okay, thank you. Well, that's just to say that this is a very conventional question. It's not at all a bandic question. It's a sort of doctrinal question, a question that sort of practicing lawyer might ask. So just to, just to note that, that the research question in itself is not ex exemplary according to the standards set by Pahuja and Koskinen. So that was just a footnote. Yeah, thank you, Paul. I mean, there, there's also, I mean, there's always different iterations. I mean, some questions can be descriptive, other can be bended, and uh, you can have some bended questions as overarching, maybe, but the subordinate questions kind of straight line. So you can combine it. But thank you for that intervention, Paul. And the second example I also think is from Paul. So let's say that you're writing a, a, a text about uh, human rights uh, monitoring mechanism. And in this particular example, the universal periodic review mechanism at the Human Rights Council. So the question is, is this efficient from an international law and human rights perspective, this mechanism? So that's the overarching question. And possible subordinate questions would be the following. What is the level of implementation of accepted recommendations in the UPR process? Are there any differences in the review process in regard to states that demonstrate the low implementation record compared to states that demonstrate the high implementation record? And then you can have a final subordinate question. Uh, are there any efficiency improvements linked to the results that can be suggested? I mean, that's kind of a more constructive or political question. So this is an, two examples of how you can 
combine overarching and subordinate questions. I'm kind of continuing in, in the same vein here. <clears throat> uh, and this, uh, this kind of connects to, to our doctoral retreat again, which we have every year, which we call a kind of critical approaches to, to international law. So what does we mean, what do we mean with critical? And this is a, a slide that I borrowed from Yuan Shilin, uh, where he kind of describes that you can be critical in different way. Uh, so one way of doing it is kind of uh, to discuss your use of con uh, concepts, description of the law. Uh, you can do it in relation to your scholarly approach, where you discuss objectivity, systemization, method. A third way of being critical is internal argumentation, where you examine language, logic, consistency, and so on. And then a, a fourth way of being critical is external criticism, where you have a certain benchmark or theory, and then you compare the law to what extent it kind of matches or fits with this benchmark or theory. So that, that's how Yuan Shilin describes it. The way we've discussed it during the, the past retreats is the following. Uh, so, I mean, you, you can discuss uh, critical in, with a capital C, and that's to work in a certain tradition of critical approaches, uh, a certain way of performing critique or to adopt a particular type of uh, theoretical approach. For example, critical legal studies. I mean, that's a certain technique or way of doing it. So that's kind of a capital C. But then we have lowercase c, which is uh, that uh, you don't do it merely descriptive. You kind of re reflect or think about what you're doing. That's also critical. And uh, uh, <laughs> do, do, we, we, I think uh, at, at these retreats, we, we've been quite clear that the, the participants are not, not the requirement is not that, that you should only do capital C. It's all right if you do lowercase c as well. Uh, so that's a little bit kind of distinctions between different uh, way of criticizing. So now I come to uh, one of the final slides, uh, which I think is very important. And uh, I mean, Paoja describes it, but I think we all do it intentionally or I mean consciously or, or not is that we start out with the project and we have a research question we, we do something and then at the end I mean regardless if it's an essay an article or if it's a PhD thesis we discovered that we have done something different from from the original research question and uh, the, the 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 resolution to that kind of scenario or situation is not to kind of rewrite your thesis or your article it's to adjust the, the research question and that's why it's good to kind of describe the research question in terms of the working question and then you, you can adjust it along the way and that's uh, perfectly legitimate and that that's also something that one can uh, explain in Let's say you're doing a PhD and in your uh, method chapter, maybe in your uh, uh, forward to, to explain, well, I set out to do the following and then I discovered that I was doing something else and this is what I, I finally ended up with. So one, one can add some transparency here. So that's um, 
what I wanted to discuss. Uh, so I'll, I'll stop the share now and we'll open up the floor. We already had a question from Paul and uh, I, I would like to welcome more questions. Something that can be added is also welcome, please. Okay, so comments, thoughts. I can't see anyone who's raising their hands. Does it sound reasonable? Would you work with research questions in a different way? I mean, I see that we have Mats with us today. I mean, you, you're in a separate scholarly field. This this how, how you think about research questions or would you describe it in a, in a different way? I think what you said was very interesting, in fact, um, and, and things I will think about for, for our own um, courses. Um, in, in the practical work, I, I think you, you, you are, are um, talking about what goes on be, 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 between the student and the tutor largely, uh, but I haven't seen it formulated like this before. Mm. I think, Daniel, did you raise your hand? Yeah. Yeah, Daniel, uh, please. Yeah, so I, I was thinking in terms of the answer, because we normally have to formulate the question, uh, at least a, a rough version of the question, before starting to actually do the research. And uh, we might think we'll have a proper answer, like some sort of solution afterwards. And uh, sometimes we won't. And uh, so maybe the question is, how do you see the possibility of doing critical research and uh, having or not having or not having even to think about providing some sort of answer or solution in the end? Like the research for the sake of doing research, taking the risk. Well, I think that's... Uh perfectly legitimate that uh, sometimes, I mean, for, 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 for certain questions or certain topics, uh, it will not be possible to have kind of one conclusive answer. I, I think these kind of yes and no questions, they kind of somewhat presume that there is a definitive answer. But if you go into this question, how, how does law operate? Uh, that kind of pushes you in in a direction where you the answer may be a little bit more open, and that's as I see it, perfectly legitimate. Peter, please. Thank you, Mark. Really, really great uh, slides and really interesting to hear. So, uh, my question, kind of, it, it can they are aimed at poor maybe, but we could talk about them together, but. So you, you showed two, two kinds of questions that Paul, if I remember correctly, Paul had come up with. Uh, and We're Paul stealing slides we... from each other. Yeah, sorry? We're stealing slides from each yeah. other. Or <laughs> maybe good. it's me, more me stealing from Paul, but whatever. But so, and then Paul commented uh, during your presentation that uh, these questions are uh, kind of straightforward questions, if I mm. understood it correctly. I mean, they were good. <laughs> But then Paul said that uh, they were straightforward. Uh, 
could we come up with suggestions how how to bend them in the Paiua sense or uh... yeah i mean i can share my screen again so let's let's take a look at these slides and see if we we can bend we, we can bend the, the questions so we can have that a little bit as an exercise so let, let's take example two uh, can the monitoring mechanism of the universal periodic review be considered as efficient? So, um, I mean, to bend that question would be, uh, what would we need to presume in order to think that the universal periodic review mechanism is efficient? I mean, that, that would be a, a way of bending it. Or uh, how how... How does the monitoring mechanism of universal periodic review affect how we think about human rights? I mean, that, that would be bending it, as I see it. Uh, so we have a question from the faculty room or Ulva. Yes, and uh, this is relating to the bending of the question because what now this was sort of a more the, the doctrinal uh, question. So when when we bent it in this way, and what one should presume and, and assume, what kind of method would be able to answer that question, or how should one approach in terms of method selection and and methodology in terms of the the bended questions? Um, I mean, the, the consequence for 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 method is that. Um, uh, it, it pushes you in, in, in a certain direction. I mean, mm -hmm. kind of um, different ways of uh, alternative ways of interpreting legal text. It kind of pushes you in that direction that you kind of seek different ways of, of uh, interpretation. Um, I, I would imagine that some question also put, pushes you in kind of a, an empirical uh, uh, way that you kind of you collect material on how law is used. So that's something we would describe as some kind of descriptive study. So I, I think depending on the question, it can kind of push you in certain methodological directions. That's, I mean, how, how, I, how I think about it. Paul, you have a comment or question? Yeah, okay. So, um, so the first question, which is sort of a, uh, uh, a social legal studies question, uh, the effect of, of the UPR, Universal Periodic Review. Um, so that question sort of assumes that there is something called efficiency, which we can measure in some way or the other, and that efficiency is, well, it's, that's a given, you know, that's something that you all can agree on what it is. But one could rephrase that so if you're interested in what the UPR does in the world, so to speak, then you could replace it in a Pahudian way by saying that what work or what effects does the, does the UPR have? So, so in Melbourne, they use the phrase, what work does it do? But you could, you could rephrase it as, so what are the effects of so forth? So uh, that means that there's, no need to assume that there's uh, an agreed idea of what is effective. So, so that's a more open question. And then you can get different 
types of answers, and perhaps you want to pursue one particular sort of effect and look more closely into that, or maybe you want to sort of uh, uh, paint a broader picture. It does this, and then it does this, and then it does this. So that would be sort of an effect-based question. Then Mark's rephrasing, I think, uh, goes to another uh, uh, knowledge interest, or and that would that goes sort of to the ideology of of the human rights movement. So, what, yeah, what would you have to think in order to face that sort of question? So, that, this goes to ideas about what human rights. And the global uh, conventions, global monitoring mechanisms can do, and so forth. So that's a sort of a, yeah, that's about the ideology. And of course, you know, uh, to be critical um, from a scholarly perspective, it's just to mind bind. It's just to ask uh, serious questions. And the more critical you are, the sort of the more capital C rather than the uh, lowercase c. But um, uh, the word critical is often taken to be sort of a, uh, something that is with that comes in a package which also contains sort of political ideologies. So if you're critical, you are uh, supposed to be on the left, which is, I think, empirically uh, very often the case, but there's no necessary scholarly connection. You can be very critical from the right, and you can also be very critical, academically speaking, and you know, have no reform agenda whatsoever. You just you're just curious and want to know what's going on. So you think that everything is fine, but I'm just you know the the current political and legal system is good. I just want to know a little. A little bit more about how it's working. So there's no necessary sort of connection between the, the one or the other form of political and any, any political agenda. It's just that you know people with certain you no know, people tend to be more on the left if they call themselves critical with an upper case C, but there's no necessary connection at all. Okay, so sorry, that was a very long answer that went tangent. All right, more questions and thoughts. Yeah, sorry, I'll let uh, David. Uh... David, please. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, thank you for a great presentation, Mark. And maybe I'll just introduce myself quickly because this is my first brown bag lunch and that I've attended. So my name is David. I'm a doctoral candidate here at Arbro University in international law. I'm a colleague with with Petter uh, Tivaras. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed the, the discussion. And I made me think a bit about um, formulating questions for different audiences. So particularly when you apply for funding from non-specialist uh, funding bodies. Um, does that tend to perhaps affect the way you formulate those research questions? Um, more from the experience of, of those of you who are a uh, senior um, in the field, if, if at all, if at all. Yeah, well, well, if I may speak about my experience, I mean, the, the, 
last couple of years when I made applications, it's been mostly in uh, teams where I'm working in a team and it's kind of interdisciplinary. So that obviously ha has consequences for the questions. So in, in the applications that I've been involved in and which has also been successful and I'm not claiming uh, all the credit for that. I, I did it with people who know how to write applications. Uh, it's uh, it's a mix of questions. So some questions are, are kind of descriptive, straightforward. And then you have some questions which are more goes kind of uh, empirical uh, direction. So it's uh, in, in those applications, typically it's uh, a kind of a mix of questions, how they're formulated. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know if uh, any one else want maybe has a kind of take on that. If, well, if I can add something because I've been on the other side of, uh, of that process uh, quite a bit. I've, I've read hundreds, if not thousands, of applications in in, in different uh, in different constellations, and I think that um, well, the the first. The, the most important advice is to clarify what you want to do, uh, in particular the method. So describe in fairly plain language what you intend to do. So that's uh, usually, um, well, that's necessary. So some people just insert a few labels of methods and theories and think that that would impress, but it doesn't. You, uh, you need to explain what you're doing. Then in terms of the questions, well, um, so I think that depends a little bit. I mean, most science is of the type, you know, where you add a little bit of brick on sort of the big edifice of, of science. So you, you identify a gap and then you say, no one has written about this in, in this particular way. So I want to add my little brick here. And um, that's... Uh, that's easy, easy to evaluate them from the from the re reviewer's perspective, and it also means that the feasibility is probably also high. You know, if you're doing something which is not radically different from what other people have done, and and and, and if you have the requisite uh, qualifications. Now, if you want to ask uh, completely new questions, well, that's uh, that's a bit of a that's a bit of a risk. That's a riskier project. Um, it depends a little bit on who your who the who the funding body is. You know, if you write to for the Swedish Research Council, for instance, they only grant um, they only fund about ten percent of the application. So then you have to so then you have to stand out. So then you have to you know probably. Um, File an application which is not of that necessary of the type where you add one little brick. You maybe want to sort of take things in a different direction. So it it depends. But if you're writing, well, if you're presenting for a more conservative or for a foundation or a body that just wants to know whether what you are doing is feasible, then the sort of the, the safer research question is a well, it's a, Maybe less exciting for you, but uh, yeah. Oh, uh, thank you. More comments or thoughts about that? I mean, 
research applications? Not related to research applications, but uh, related to sort of the, the, the so what question. And you were talking about uh, either you have this theoretical development or societal, uh, societal uh, value. And uh, a question to you, Mark, how you sort of uh, weigh these two different interests? How do you value and weigh and think about them in when you sort of conceive your research? Um, well, I mean, maybe I was a bit too categorical. I mean, one can imagine projects which are only of scholarly interest and less of societal i'll explain that in a minute but i i have kind of i have difficulties especially when students they want to write about something that is kind of making them engaged which is good it's good that students are engaged and they, they want to write about some kind of situation or problem in the world but there's there's often they want to do some kind of text which is kind of in advocacy but I think it's still a university, so we need kind of a scholarly dimension to all questions. We, we cannot avoid that. Um, I think you can probably have a, a study which is kind of, um, have kind of a, a problem which is scholarly, but it's unclear what the societal value is. And I, I will give an example. Uh, it was at our first research retreat in Yimo, and um, the, the, the guest we had was Marty Koskiniemi. Uh, and there was one of the PhD candidates who had written her PhD project was very interesting, I think. And it was about um, the status, what, what, uh, what legal value do we give to case law from international courts? And uh, I think that's a question of very kind of, very kind of scholarly value, but it's, it's difficult to kind of pin down the societal value of that. I mean, it, it has societal value, but it's quite un, undirect. I mean, what, what this question. So Marty, he was pushing the PhD candidate quite hard. So he was saying, so what? Why, why is this uh, interesting? What, what's the societal value? That's, I, I remember that. He was pushing the PhD candidate. And I, I felt a little bit... Um, um, I felt uh, the, the PhD candidate was pushed too hard. So I kind of asked a counter question to, to Marty. So I asked him, okay, from apology to utopia, I mean, it's a great work, but what, what was the societal value of, of that book? And uh, I don't think he gave me a good answer. He voided it in, in some way. But I mean, it's still a great work, but it's, it's difficult to pinpoint the societal value. I don't know. Maybe you, you, it's easy for you to... Maybe some of you have, have an answer to that, but uh, so, so that would be an example of where you can do a very good kind of scholarly work, but it's maybe difficult to pinpoint the societal value. So that uh, doctor student, uh, she recovered and she's now, she's now employed at, at Leiden University. Yes, exactly. So uh, it, it went well for her. So don't be afraid of these uh, very well-established professors when they're pushing you. More questions or thoughts? Daniel has a question. 
Yeah, I wanted to go back to a post footnote on the political stance of critical scholars. Um, and I, I'll do that because I, I was checking some notes I made on orthodox Marxism uh, in Lukács' first chapter in History and Class Consciousness. And uh, he frames the main con scientific contribution of Marxism as restoring totality and recovering or and focusing on the contradictions and uh, restoring totality within the historical process. And I think this could apply equally well to either left-wing oriented research and right-wing oriented research. And I was thinking, uh, so I, I'm thinking in terms of the, what, the, the question that Mark raised, uh, what should or what do we need to assume so that this can be deemed efficient or not? And uh, the only case I know at least a little bit that could relate to Sweden is the one that the fundamental right to property was discussed in terms of the Swedish capa uh, government capacity of intervening in private property and it gave uh, rise it has some tort issues that relates to, so there was this possibility of uh, the government holding a claim over someone's property and uh, not having to exercise it and so on. So this could be a very good example where totality of, and the assumptions and contradictions were restored, but ultimately what was pursued was a pretty, uh, I wouldn't say right-wing right, but something that the political right would normally hold very um, close to its heart which is uh, private property and individual freedom. Uh, so, and uh, Lukács say in, says in the book that this very part of the dialectical process is not necessarily politically oriented. So you could do this regardless of your political stance. But my last comment then is, if the, light, the left tends to do more critical research, this could also be indicative that we are experiencing much more contradictions that affect uh, the masses of, I don't know, workers, unemployed people, etc. But the other part, the other side can normally simply do research that confirms the uh, current balance of powers in the historical process. So it's not that uh, only the left takes the political stance, but eventually the other sides or perspectives doesn't need to because it's already represented. Yeah, it's just my, my comment. Yeah, thank you. I uh... the Marxist capital and discover you know that the capitalists are exploiting the working class, and you can say fine, that's exactly how it should be. So there's there's no necessary. I mean, but probably most people would say that oh oh Jesus, but this is bad, so we need to do something about it. But that doesn't necessarily come out of capital, even though Marx writes it, but it doesn't necessarily come out of that. The theory, so to speak. So then, speaking of property rights, well, sort of, sort of, the critical person on the right, and we actually we had one at the factory a couple of decades ago. So he would uh, sort of analyze um, the prevailing lawmaking ideology of the of the Social Democratic Party, and you know, come up with with uh, inconsistencies and so forth, and that was. So whereas someone on the on the left would be more inclined to, for instance, uh, analyze or to uh, 
look into contradictions and assumptions underlying the conception of, of property rights. So, but again, there's no necessary link between the politics and the theory. It's just that you know, if you're if you're a bit suspicious of the effects of property rights, you're more inclined to think critically about them. And if you're more inclined to think you know, that the government has too much power, then you want to sort of uh, uh, look into the ideologies that are justifying that power. So, but again, that could be done from the from any political perspective. I mean, this this thing. I mean, who is critical? And we're discussing left or right. I mean, it 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 kind of depends. I mean, if if the system is kind of operating under the ideology that you support, then. I think it comes naturally that you're you're less critical. But I mean, imagine if you're living in a welfare state, uh, and uh, and you're a right wing theorist or kind of right wing scholar, then I would imagine that such a person would become more critical. I mean, they will kind of look for contradictions and underlying values and so on. So I think. Um, if if we're, if we're trying to understand who is critical and why, I mean, one one probable cause is kind of whether the existing system or not kind of corresponds to to your own values. And if not, then it kind of comes natural that you become more critical and or you're explicit about it. Um. All right. More questions or thoughts, Mats? Please. Uh, I think about critique more as 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 uh, trying to 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 find something different from what appears uh, uh, coming from 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 Kant and so on. And what are the what 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 can what can we as as as, as human being think? What can we as human being experience and, and, and so on? And go, and that's where it goes from. Um, um, but but I think the overall question would be, isn't what what you are proposing here actually to use uh, the, form, the formulation of questions for a more theoretically informed way, uh, and or and even a, a more structuralist or, or um, let's say sociolo sociological way of looking at. At law and, and, and using uh, um, the question to, 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 to as, as you say, pressure the student, but also pressure yourself to, to a more theoretically informed way of thinking. Well, well that's exactly how I would see it, that... Uh... I mean, it's often comes up when I'm supervising students that uh, uh, they they have these very descriptive questions, and I, I kind of see from the from the start that there will not be a lot of analysis here. They will just kind of recapitulate the, the content on the rules and nothing more. And we we want the students to do something more. So by by bending or adding questions, we can get a greater analytical depth and, and simply more discussion and where they kind of contribute with something themselves. Uh, so I, I think that's probably one of the, the most important uh, things yeah. while you work with the questions. Uh, 
And I think it's also a very good question, uh, um, advice to our, ourselves because when we are formulating the research ap applications, we are in the same situation as the students. We want to look at something which we, we don't really know what's, what it con contains. So it, it's, um, my experience is that that just be, be, before my, uh, turning in the app, 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 applications, you you find yourself having, or at least I have been, um, having formulated a very descriptive question. So it, it, it's a good rule of thought to always look at the question at, at just before turning in the app, app, application, whether you're a student or a professional re researcher. Thank you. More questions or thoughts? I mean, we're coming to the close of the hour, so we don't have to kind of push push people here to, to formulate new questions. I mean, having said that, so um, I can share my, my, my slides if anybody wants them. Uh, I, I kind of use some of these slides when I have uh, courses in methodology for, 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 for my students. So if you, if you want to use them for the same purpose, that, that's fine. I'm happy to share. Um, and uh, is there anything else? I mean, if, if, we kind of, uh, if we've kind of concluded the, the discussion on this on research question, is there anything else that people want to share? Ilva, do you, do you know uh, what, what will be the topic for the next uh, BBL? Yes, it's uh, Said Mahmoudi that will speak about reviewing your books. Um, and the invitation will go out tomorrow. Yeah. Something that maybe if we have an empty spot later in the spring is this uh, new treaty which regulates uh, environment on the high seas. I think uh, yes. I, I haven't followed that process and that would be something interesting to hear about. Yes, it's uh, scheduled for the 23rd of March now with Martin Vatkovic and the colleague. Okay, so it's already there. <laughs> Great. <Yeah. laughs> and Mariana wanted to no. say something. We were discussing your email like Daniel from the issue about like uh, Freedom of speech and project and all this. Uh, yes, it's uh, it has turned into a skill event, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And then Daniel is uh, following up uh, on that. Yeah. All right. So maybe with that, we can conclude. And uh, yes, and if there are anyone else who want to present or do anything at this uh, occasion, I'm thinking about David, if you want to, or any other uh, we're very happy to to uh, hear you yeah this uh, occasion as well for BBS. Yeah, sure. Thank you. I'll uh, yeah, I'll consider it. And I'll let the colleagues know as well. Great. Thanks. Yeah. So, we're rounding up.